Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're remote today. It's impeachment hearing day in the House. Um, It's freezing. It is cold. No matter how you look at it, it is ice cold out there in Washington. I don't know how you're feeling where you are, Kristen. Not great. Oh, I'm in Washington and it's not great. I'm not here for this. Uh, This led to a morning wardrobe dilemma, which I posted about on Twitter and which Mm -hmm. because Margie, we have a we have a webcam situation here as well. She can see that I'm wearing a black turtleneck right now. Uh, black turtleneck, like a black cashmere turtleneck is a great way to not try, but to look like you maybe kind of tried. Like, I feel like you always look pulled together. You Like, it's just, it's a notch up from any other sweater, uh, sure. that you can throw on, I, I think. The other style hack I usually like to employ when I'm in a rush, but would like to appear like I'm trying is red lipstick. Red lipstick always looks like I'm here and I care. Even if, I mean, you have to actually spend more than 10 seconds or else you look like the Joker, but generally I find red lipstick to be a good, like, I need to look like I tried, but I don't have the energy, effort, or time to try, so red lipstick it is. The question is, in 2019, the year of our Lord, in a post-Theranos era, Am I allowed to wear red lipstick with a black turtleneck? Yes, I think you are. I mean, look. I Or does it look re- like I'm Elizabeth Holmes cosplaying? You know, I actually thought of doing that. At the, somebody had a going away party. They were moving to California. And you had to come as like a California-themed something. And I was like, maybe I should go as Elizabeth Theranos. And, <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth Holmes from Ther- Theranos or whatever. Um but it was like 150 degrees outside, so I did not. But I think it's always fine. I mean, she did that because it was simple. She, she didn't come up with some kind of new costume that nobody had ever worn before. And you have your hair down. And she would wear her hair up in some sort of like, I'm not trying, hair hair pony thing. So This is also my actual voice, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, I did and you were actually – we're actually talking about polls, not some like made-up numbers completely concocted. I, I, we I, think, we think. I posted this on Twitter. <laughs> 72 to 28 say, yes, you can still wear red lipstick with a black turtleneck. Um, my friend Kelly Marr, uh, who is out in Colorado, she was like, don't let people who commit crimes take your style away from you. Um, but there was one person on Twitter who appears to be, I don't know, the, the picture on the account is Sean Hannity hugging Michael Cohen, and the banner picture is Scaramucci and Reince Priebus looking at one another. So if this isn't a bot, I'll be stunned. But the account says it was always a bad look. So yeah. I now feel more committed than ever to the idea that it is a good look because yes, I think that's I don't right. understand what's going on with that Twitter account, but probably, if yeah. whatever they think, it's probably the opposite. So yes. agreed. Those are not for dudes known for their style. I would say if you are going to have a presence on social media, you may as well make it about yourself and not like pictures of political dudes and news figures. Like be an individual, be a person. Alas, I digress. Yes, fair enough. 
Uh, so this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the Dem primary. We have the entrance or possible entrance of Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. Does that shake up the field or is it a nothing burger? We will discuss. Um, we'll talk a little bit about impeachment. As Margie mentioned, the hearings are going on as we are recording this show. Um, but we will chat briefly about whether these numbers are moving, as well as some new navigator research about impeachment. Um, a couple quick check-ins on some big stories in the news. The Supreme Court is hearing uh, arguments around DACA. So we'll just do a check back in on how the polling has looked on DACA headed up until this moment, as well as what folks are thinking about the Supreme Court's potential decision. And we'll wrap up by talking a little bit about um, veterans. We had Veterans Day on Monday. We'll talk about a little bit of polling around um, them, their views, the experience of being a veteran in America. And finally, are you anxious about the holidays yet? We will discuss. Great. Okay. So first, the Democratic primary. Just when you thought, well, I guess you never really thought it was not moving or not filled with action. There is a lot of action or at least a lot of potential action. So um, you saw in the last week or so two potential candidates thinking about getting in the field, uh, former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg and former governor of Massachusetts Deval Patrick. Um, also, uh, there was a poll that showed Mayor Pete in the lead in Iowa, which um, that that was newsworthy. That was something, even though looking at the the spread between the top three candidates or the top four candidates. We're using the word lead generously here. Yes, that's where I was headed. So it made news yep. because people, you know, that was the first time and people, you know, wanted to talk about it, but not because the lead is really something that's that's large, but, you know, it's still part of a trend of, of what's happening in Iowa. So what do you see as outside observer of the wonderful tapestry of the Democratic primary field. What, what, how does it look from your point of view? Uh, so there was a poll that Fox put out, uh, I believe a week and a half ago, where they asked Democrats, are you satisfied with your field? And like seven in 10 said, yes, we're satisfied with the field, which is frankly a surprising number insofar as Whenever you ask people in a poll, do you want more options? People always say yes to that question. Like, there's no cost to saying yes to that question. Would you like more options? Would you like more choices? I've used this analogy on the show a million times, but like, I may know that I'm going to order chicken fingers at a restaurant. Doesn't mean that I'm not like, sure, put more options on the menu. Knock yourself out, Cheesecake Factory. But I know what I want. And I know a girl wants chicken fingers. So like, this is, the fact that seven out of 10 Democrats are like, I'm basically happy with what you've got. I don't need you to add more things to the menu is then makes it extra perplexing that people are like, you know what you need? More things on the menu. You need Deval Patrick and Michael Bloomberg is what you need. So uh, there's that. Then the Fox poll also asked um, if any of the following people were to jump in, would you vote for them? For Michelle Obama, like 50% of Democrats said like they would definitely vote for her which is not terribly surprising because she's not a super political figure. So it's like all upside, no downside for Democrats. There's not been like, you know, what do you, what's her health care plan for anybody to go after? Um, Hillary Clinton, it came in closer to a quarter, said they would definitely vote for her. For Bloomberg, it was only 6%. And I, I think this has to do with one, 
a billionaire can buy airtime in Iowa. They can buy airtime in New Hampshire. They can maybe get themselves to five or six points. Tom Steyer, looking at you. Um, you can maybe get your way on the debate stage. But is the Democratic Party in 2019 looking for a billionaire to be the guy that runs against Trump? Now, maybe Bloomberg could be the guy because Bloomberg could say, hey, I am... I have been dealing with people like Trump all my life. And so, sure, I may be a billionaire, but like I'm the New York billionaire who knows how to take on these other New York billionaires. So like make me the guy to take on Trump. But that, you know, it could it could work. If instead the pitch is I am fiscally moderate and Joe Biden seems like he's kind of a weak candidate. So pick me so that I can save us in the event that Joe Biden implodes. That to me just seems like a weird pitch because Biden is still, as we'll talk about in a moment, in the lead in national polls. He's still very formidable in all the early states. He's crushing it in South Carolina. Like, there's so much talk about how Biden is this weak, weak candidate, but there's not a lot of polling evidence to back that up unless you're just looking at the early states. And even there, he's like hanging in the top few. So if Bloomberg runs, and Biden stays in, all that does is make it more likely that either Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders wins the nomination because you're peeling away potentially like a small handful of those fiscally moderate Democrats who might think Warren or Sanders, that's a bridge too far, but I'm okay with Biden. Like it, To me, it's just, it's totally nonsensical unless Biden was like raising, you know, less than 10 million a quarter and was on the verge of collapse. And I just don't think that's the world we're in. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think those are some good questions to ask and we'll see a few things. I mean, is it the role of money and being able to advertise to, you know, to voters, I mean, how, you know, be able to stay in as long as you want while other candidates, you know, one, have to spend time and resources fundraising and two, can't stay in or have to make some decisions about what states they are active in, what states they advertise in, what states they prepare for down the road, what early states they prioritize. Um, the other thing that Bloomberg folks, I think, are indicating is that if they're doing this, they are, you know, passing by some of the early states. And how does that, how does that work as a strategy? We'll see. I mean, these are questions that, you know, that I think lots of different candidates are trying to calculate and, and figure out what their approach would be. And you can make an argument that states that vote early but are not Iowa and New Hampshire, so South Carolina or Nevada or the states after that, those states have an important role to play and have important, um, you know, Democratic electorates that are important to talk to. Um, but is there an effect of coming out on top in one of the first two states that, you know, you can't really predict as easily now, but will be very important and hard to overcome if you have that strategy? And is that calculation different if you are... Michael Bloomberg, or if you're one of the candidates who's been in the race for a while. So th these are things that we, you know, have people have conjectures to, but we don't have an actual quantitative answer to yet. So I, I have more of a sense of what, like Bloomberg to me seems like the one of the two who have been discussed about jumping in, who could be more formidable if only, and not because I think he meets an ideological need in the electorate, because as we have discussed on the show before, the cross-section of those who are more fiscally moderate but socially progressive is like not that huge. Um, and so one, it's a question of is there is there a market for what Bloomberg is selling even in a general election? Possibly, but there's enough evidence that it actually cuts the other way a bit more, that the more socially conservative, fiscally progressive angle, there's a lot more voters there for the taking. 
Um, but the thing going in his favor is the ballot access question. So in right. order to run for president, you have to get your name on all these ballots. Uh, and that requires a lot of effort, a lot of machinery, a lot of signatures, which requires a lot of money. You know, right. like Bloomberg has, he state. has a lot of money. So, yeah, go ahead. Right. No, it's different in every state. They have different timelines, different procedures, you know, all of that. Plus, you know, sort of how you get out your message in those states will, is going to vary tremendously. So those are all things that, you know, a lot of people look, we look at national polls. We look at Iowa and New Hampshire polls. There's not that much beyond that in the primary in terms of public polling. But there's so much involved in getting your message out in those other states that a national poll really just reflects the national news coverage that people are hearing. So does this shake up the Democratic primary? It seems unlikely to do so. Taking a look at the RCP average nationally, Joe Biden remains in the lead, an average of about 27 points, followed by Warren at an average of about 21, uh, Sanders an average of 17. Buttigieg continues to be sort of the top of that next tier uh, at about 7.5, with uh, Harris at about 5.5, and, and then there's the rest. Um, in Iowa, as Margie mentioned, there was this poll that, you know, popped from Monmouth showing Buttigieg um, doing quite well, 22 points um, with Biden in 19, Warren in 18, Sanders at 13. So a good poll for Mayor Pete. Um, can he continue? If he wins in Iowa, does that suddenly mean he has momentum going into the New Hampshire's and South Carolina's of the world. This is not, it's not the same as Obama 20, 2008, right? Where it was just kind of Obama and Clinton, a closely fought race, et cetera. Like this would be a different situation. Um, you also have the fact that New Hampshire is like home turf for Warren and for Sanders. Mm -hmm. But Iowa matters a lot more to Democrats than to Republicans. So, or it seems to based on historical pattern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And you have a lot of these candidates who've spent a lot of time and resources in Iowa for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. So, you know, the Democratic primary, not a ton of change there with the exception of that one kind of, you know, big poll that made people think, oh, maybe something really is going on here in Iowa with Mayor Pete. Right. Um, and so remember we'll that last. Yeah. I mean, remember, he's on the air. So for people who are, you know, in Iowa, so for people who are kind of wondering, like, well, what is happening when you look at Iowa yeah. or New Hampshire? You know, it is public. You can see it is public information who's up on the air and how, what you know what they're doing. Um, there are different Twitter accounts you can follow to kind of figure out what's happening on the air. And you know, Mayor Pete's on the air a lot in Iowa, so that you know that would explain a lot of what's going on there. Um, but also, just you know, as a reality check here, just in terms of what these numbers mean, you know, being at twenty two compared to nineteen and eighteen, so you know, Buttigieg, Biden, Warren, and that uh, order in the Monmouth poll. The poll before that, you had uh, Warren at 20, Buttigieg at 19, Sanders at 17, Biden at 15. I mean, these are differences, but are they really big differences between one poll and the next, or is this kind of margin of error stuff? Well, we'll hopefully get more data as we get closer to Iowa, because um, this is the only poll. Well, we've got we've got both Monmouth and Quinnipiac. Again, both of those showing Buttigieg doing quite well, but I, I expect the pace with which we start getting Iowa polls to uh, increase here in pretty short order. But I mean, it's it's very much a four way race now, which is impressive because nationally Buttigieg is not in the like it's a three way race nationally. So to be uh, in that place in Iowa is pretty astonishing. So Trump's job approval and impeachment. Let's go. Let's flip to the other side of the aisle. Trump's job approval hanging out about forty four percent. 
Um, so a very slight rebound from when it had dipped below 42 a couple weeks ago. One of the most recent polls, the yep. second most recent polls, a Rasmussen poll. So that always tends to, you know, noodle, noodle with things a point or two. But the story that it tells is this story it's been telling for a while. Uh, similarly with impeachment, um, the trend lines from 538 show not a ton of movement. You know, you saw that big shift right at the beginning when Pelosi announced they were going to potentially move forward with an inquiry and you had the whistleblower report. But since then, things have leveled off at about 52 percent support, 45 percent don't support. Um, that's on the question of to begin the impeachment process. On the question of impeach and remove, um, that remains very close uh, with about uh essentially tied um, on the question of should the president be impeached and remove those trend lines very close together. Again, after flipping, um, previously it had been pretty, you know, a, a significant a majority saying don't impeach and remove. Um, that's now below half. Um, you have slightly more saying impeach and remove, but it's it's pretty close. So you all at Navigator, you did some polling on impeachment. Tell us what you found. Yes. So this is the monthly Navigator poll that we work on along with Global Strategy Group. Um, and uh, just to provide some uh, interesting message guidance and better understand what's what's going on for, uh, for progressives and anybody who's interested in this sort of thing, always available publicly at navigatorresearch.org where the memo will be as well as uh, the top lines. So this is the second time we've done kind of a, uh, deep dive on impeachment. And there are a few, there are a few things. So the overall measure of support for impeachment is, is pretty similar to what it's been and what it was when we, you know, did it in October. And that mirrors what's happening nationally. Um, we looked at some of the specific validators and facts and just some of, you know, how credible specific people are, which I think is relevant given that we're seeing public testimony today. So we asked some questions that I think are relevant for, you know, looking at what's going on this week, um, but also how people view the actions, Trump's actions, and how we talk about it and how people, you know, hear some of the different ways that, that uh, we talk about impeachment. And we did the same thing that we did in uh, the last poll, which was to look at impeachment skeptics. And these are people who are all the people that are in an impeachment, you know, could be an impeachment skeptic, right? First of all, you could just not be sure how you feel about impeachment. On the up or down on impeachment, you're not sure. Then that would put you in the skeptic group. If you oppose impeachment, but you think Trump's committed an impeachable offense, but it'd be better to wait till the next election, let the people decide, we put those folks in, um, in the skeptics group. If you also feel, if you oppose impeachment, but you say, well, he may have done something wrong, but it's too soon to say whether it justifies impeachment or not. Those folks are impeachment skeptics. So putting all those folks together, only the folks who are, you know, they oppose impeachment, he's done nothing wrong. That's kind of a hard opposition. And if you support impeachment, then you're in the support impeachment. So you're really looking at that kind of middle, roughly quarter of the electorate, about 26%. So we look at those folks throughout. So, you know, it's a way of kind of figuring out these folks who are kind of on the fence or more open to having a conversation about impeachment, what resonates for them. Um, and, you know, there are a few, you know, a few things that stuck out, but folks should obviously look at the whole memo. Um, one is this framing around um, law and order that uh, Democrats have the advantage uh, and trust on the rule of law compared to Trump. 
So you have, uh, you know, 49% of folks trust Democrats more compared to 35% who trust Republicans more on protecting law and order um, and a 14-point gap on the rule of law. And that gap is a little bit narrower if you're comparing Democrats in Congress to Republicans in Congress. So there's something about Trump specifically where there's a real gap where Democrats are, are more trustworthy on these things, which I think is important given how salient phrases are like, you know, uh, no one is above the law or Trump abused his power. I mean, these things that you've seen, you know, folks say or you've seen in the news um, are continue to resonate. And it makes sense when you see this gap between Democrats in Congress and Republicans in Congress. Now, talking about the um, descriptions. All right. So we yeah, tested a variety of descriptions of people who've spoken out against Trump and um, we asked, how, are they likely to be telling the truth or not likely to be telling the truth? Or is it too difficult to say? Um, so just looking at the skeptics only, right, that middle quarter who are, you know, maybe they are opposed to impeachment, but they think Trump probably did something wrong, just, you know, maybe not impeachable. So the most, the folks who seem, are seen as most likely to be telling the truth are people like an Iraq war veteran who's worked on national security in the White House or an Iraq war veteran um, you know, who worked in the White House under Republican and Democratic administrations or a Vietnam veteran and career diplomat appointed by the Trump administration. These folks, about half or more, say, of skeptics, say these folks are probably likely to be telling the truth as opposed to say they're not likely to be telling the truth or it's too difficult to say. So I think that's important as we go through what's happening, you know, this week um, and some of the testimony that we're already seeing. Um, we also tested some language about, in addition to things like Trump abused his power by withholding aid or, um, you know, nobody's above the law, but Trump, you know, broke the law by asking a foreign country to help. Um, another message that, that folks seem uh, to find convincing, particularly the skeptics, is there is evidence President Trump solicited a bribe or asked for a bribe, which the Constitution lists as ground for impeachment. That's also in the top tier um, as well. Uh, so we see that in a couple places. The thing that I thought was most sort of telling about why I think the televised hearings, they will have to have something that is really like a blockbuster new revelation that dramatically changes our thinking on this in order to really move those numbers, which again, don't start in a great place for the president to begin with, is these questions about describe how you might feel about the impeachment inquiry that both opponents of impeachment as well as skeptics of impeachment say 43 and 42% respectively say they are exhausted by this. So much, much more likely to say, you know, the skeptics look a lot more like the opponents on are they exhausted? Are you, uh, are you interested? Like they're not really interested. Uh, only 12% of the skeptics say they're interested in this process compared to 44% of supporters of, of impeachment who say they are interested. It just makes me think like, you know, we joked, our, I think our episode a few weeks ago was like huffing the impeachment paint. They're like, it's something that if you really don't like the president, you may be watching this minute by minute waiting for like, you know, the, the things to come out to, to, you know, validate your view of the president or to be the thing that will take him down. But for those skeptics, it does not seem like they are expressing like, 
man, you know what? I don't really know the answer and I'm super interested in tuning into television to find out the answer. Like that that doesn't seem to be what I'm getting from from this data. I, I think, you know, I think that's fair. I mean, look, you know, for sure the people who are, you know, uh, who are engaged on this, you know, are, are the, the folks who are particularly engaged tend to be folks who are supportive of impeachment. For sure, if you're opposed, you're, you know, it's not going to be something that you are going to spend as much time on. Overall, though, still we see more people paying attention to the story and just, you know, from what I've seen in qualitative, uh, a higher level of awareness and engagement of some of the facts and basic contours of the story than I've seen when, you know, we've tested similar kinds of things earlier in the year, like the special counsel investigation and so on. So, you know, I, I feel that there's a different level of engagement. And anyway, we're just we're just in the beginning. And I think this is why, to address what you're saying, it's important to, you know, to be very clear about, you know, here here's what here's what happened. Here are the actions. Here's why they are wrong. Here's what is a problem about that. And here's why that's impeachable. And so I think that's how you're going to see, you know, continue to see this conversation involved to, to, you know, to really explain how these dots connect. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about DACA as well as veterans. We'll be right back. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. Okay, we're back. So we want to dive into some a little bit old, old polls. Um, there has not been a ton of really, really, really piping hot fresh polling on the issue of DACA, but this is an issue that came in front of the Supreme Court this week as the challenge proceeds to hear whether or not the Trump administration can roll back things that the Obama administration did regarding offering DACA protection to people who are brought here to the United States as children undocumented. Um, Generally, we find that DACA itself is quite popular and it is relatively perplexing and it is generally popular in a bipartisan fashion and therefore perplexing that the legislative branch has been unable to fix this and therefore it is in an executive branch one president does it with pen and pad. The other president undoes it with pen and pad. Legal battle. Um, if you look at Monmouth polling from January 2018, they said if you had to choose what should happen to most illegal immigrants who have lived and worked in the U.S. for at least two years, um, even and that's not just DACA. That's just overall. If you uh, came here illegally, but you have been here for at least two years, 77% of Americans said they should get a chance to keep their jobs. Only 20% say deported. When you say some people came here with their families when they were children, would you support or oppose making these immigrants return to their birth country and reapply for entry? 67% oppose. Um, would you support or oppose allowing people who illegally immigrated when they were children to automatically become U.S. citizens as long as they don't have a criminal record? 73% say they would support that. So broad, and frankly, you have to have bipartisan agreement on something in order to get up to 73%. Um, sort of response on this. So DACA itself, quite popular, has been for a while. Um, but people also seem to be pretty pessimistic that the that Congress or even working with the president is able to fix this. And this isn't just 
President Trump. This is also, there's some fascinating data from CNN, where throughout the Trump presidency, they have periodically asked, how confident are you that Congress and President Trump will enact new laws on immigration and border security that will improve the way the country handles this issue? And a majority say not too confident or not confident at all. 60% in their February 2018 poll said that. But they also asked that same question in June 2006, which you may recall is like the time that Bush was trying to push comprehensive immigration reform. Back then, pretty similar finding, 29% not too confident, 33% not at all confident that Congress and President Bush would enact new laws on immigration and border security. So America has been pessimistic that this stuff is going to get fixed. And I don't know, I mean, it may be, but we don't have it here, and I don't think it was in this poll, that CNN or you know has asked some, a similar scale but about a different issue. How confident are you that Congress and President blank will be able to do blank and you know, it's quite possible that no matter how you fill in the blanks, you know, a majority say they're not, you know, not at all or not too confident. Um, so it, it may not be specifically about immigration, but this has obviously, you're right, been something that has been tough for there to, you know, for there to be any kind of, you know, consensus or, or coalition building on. You know, I think when I look at the, you know, DACA results, um, which are, you know, consistently supportive of, dreamers consistently. I haven't seen a poll, you know, in the time that we've been looking at this, although we didn't go back to this week to look at every single thing. But, we, you know, this has been happening over the last few years. I've never seen a poll that has shown opposition, you know, widespread opposition the other way. It's always been, you know, pretty, pretty consistent. At the same time, like you know, lots of other immigration proposals have majority support. It is one of those issues, you know, like not dissimilar from guns, I would have to say, where if you look at some a question that's more broad about immigration, you know, how do you feel about immigration? It, it depends on how you ask the question. It may be a little bit more mixed or certainly more partisan. If you start going through the specific proposals, lots of proposals actually have majority support. So there are folks out there, particularly on the Republican side, who may be more divided on how they feel about immigration as a concept, more or less, or as top priority, et cetera, or which party they trust, and so on. But when you actually go through some of the proposals that are part of the conversation, they say, well, actually, that, you know, I'm, I support that. Well, I support that one, too. Um, and it's a shame that our conversation, our dialogue about this sometimes makes it seem like it is actually more politically contentious among voters in a way that, you know, really can be damaging to folks who are someplace else when you're really talking about like a quarter of the electorate that feel, you know, is on the other side of a variety of these proposals as opposed to, you know, a majority or something larger. So last but not least, and a lot of these questions were being asked in this polling, uh, this Monmouth poll, as well as the CNN poll around the time. I think this was, was this government, wait, I'm totally, this is not government shutdown. This is, I'm missing what year the government shut down. <laughs> Please ignore me. Was the, did the government, the government shutdown was, was before the midterms, right? Because it was still a Republican Congress when the government first was in the like, wait a minute, we're running out of funding. I, I'm just, I was fascinated because at first I started looking at some of this polling thinking it was done around the time of the shutdown, but it was it actually. Was. No, I think it was. The January 18, there was a shutdown, right? I mean, that was part, that was part of this. The Monmouth poll that's in January of 18. Got it. Okay. Um, for some reason, I thought that the shutdown was January 19. 
The time is a flat circle. <laughs> Hang on, I'm Googling this. What year did the government shut down? It, yes, it was December 2018 through January yes, 2019. Yes, there was a shutdown then, but there was a shut. There were multiple shutdowns. So there maybe that's also, why we're confusing it. Oh, wow. Yes. This, well, the, that's like the, the DACA back. This DACA back and forth was 18. Yes. Um, but I just, I noted that they have some questions there about tying it to wall funding. And that's yeah. where the numbers get a little bit different. When you say the Trump administration has proposed a deal, DACA for the wall, do you support or oppose? And that winds up being split much more like a third, a third, a third support, oppose. I don't know. Cause you've got a lot of people who are cross pressured who might really like DACA, but not like the wall or people who might like the wall, but not like DACA. Um, more people are the former than the latter, but you know, suddenly when you begin talking about these different combinations of policies that could come together to be a, you know, oh, hey, I give you this, you give me that sort of deal. Instead of gaining people, you lose people and you right. wind well, up. You also have, right. And you have a high unsure there too. Very high unsure. Like, okay. Well, now, now you've lost me on what the trade-offs are, which is understandable because it was complicated. Yeah. So let's talk now about um, veterans. So we also- Wait, wait. Before we do that, though, just to tie it back to the Supreme Court. Yes. So just, you know, support for DACA has been consistent, right? But there's been a recent poll. This was a Marquette, Wisconsin poll, but it was done nationally. It was a national poll, but it came from Marquette, where they asked all kinds of interesting stuff about the Supreme Court. So- you know, folks should take a look at it. We always link to these things um, about how they, you know, people tend to view the court as moderate, for example, and those paying closer attention to the court seem to trust it more than folks who are paying less attention to it. So I think there's some interesting stuff in there. And they asked about past cases, but they also asked about potential future cases and whether people favor or oppose them. And ending DACA, there were quite a few here that are considered to be on the table in some way, and people tend to oppose them. And ending DACA is one of those with 37% saying they strongly oppose, an additional 16% say they you know, somewhat oppose, um, not as much strong favor of that. You know, you, um, so you have 17% who say they strongly favor compared to you know, 37% strongly oppose, right? So there's more intensity there on the opposition. Similarly with Overturning Roe v. Wade, denying service to uh, LGBT folks, striking down ACA. I mean, a variety of different things. You know, Second Amendment um, prohibits a semi-automatic rifle ban. There's a variety of stuff where, you know, a majority of uh, voters say that they would be against the Supreme Court, you know, ruling in a, let's call it a conservative position on some of these issues. But DACA is one of them. So, you know, so we'll, we'll see how you know, what happens next in the Supreme Court. And if you look at, and obviously the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't like make their judgments based on what they think the polls tell them to say, but will the polls change and reflect a change in attitude toward the Supreme Court if some of these court cases end up going that way? The other thing, though, that's a real challenge with doing polling around Supreme Court stuff is that oftentimes the legal merits of an issue are very different from the po- the, the merits of the policy issue. So, for example, on DACA, you can be someone who says, I believe DACA is a good policy and I would support Congress passing it. At the same time, if an executive branch unilaterally instituted policy can also legally be unilaterally repealed by the executive branch. So I may like DACA. 
but I may believe that the legal grounds that the president has the legal authority to undo what the previous president legally unilaterally did. And that's like a much wonkier, like we don't often poll on stuff like that, but I think that is an important wrinkle to keep in mind when it comes to the Supreme Court is that oftentimes, you know, it will get reported as, oh, the Supreme Court got rid of DACA today. For most people, they may go, oh, well, that's so that's so sad because I really liked DACA and we see that in the polls. But that's different than if I were to ask a question separate from the merits of DACA or any particular policy and just said, do you believe that a president should be able to undo things the past president did without asking Congress first if Congress wasn't asked in the first place? Would people be different on that? Because they may not think like that's what the Supreme Court's actually ruling on in this DACA thing. They just hear, oh, they're ruling on a policy I like and that frustrates me. Yeah, I mean, that would fall into one of these areas like you could ask a question about that, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get a very clear response Because people on are it. not thinking about that very often. No, no. And, uh, you know, they have some other stuff in this Marquette survey where they ask people about, you know, just like kind of a quiz about their knowledge of the Supreme Court and like what sort of powers does the Supreme Court have and can you, you know, how many justices can you name individually their names and so on? And then they give people like a score. And I think, a, you know, between a quarter and a third or so can have a, you know, strong score on being able to name a, you know, name a variety, being able to get a lot of these questions correct. Um, so only 8%. Oh, so, okay, this is that separate. The, the quiz was four separate questions looking at the number of justices people are able to rate. So, give a rating. That's not even asking people to kind of identify in an open-ended way, like, okay, name name some Supreme Court justices, but just able to rate. Um, 28% can rate zero of them, and only 8% can rate nine of them. So just to give you a little sense of where people are. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk Veterans Day and a little bit about the holidays. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, so we're back, and it was Veterans Day on Monday, um, and I, I was actually quite amazed and interested in all of the polling that came out in the last couple of weeks around veterans. Really covers an incredible breadth of issues around this topic. I'm in terms of how people. I mean, this was one that was interesting. So there are a couple of different pieces. One was how this was a poll of veterans. How people feel. This was. Um, uh, CVN, so the Cohen Veterans Network, um, so they did a survey of 2,000 adults, uh, various kinds of veterans and service members, and um, they asked people, 
you know, 90% of Americans thank veterans for their service, but about half of veterans say they feel a little uncomfortable being thanked for their service when somebody just shows their appreciation in kind of an unaided, you know, way out in public. About half say they don't really, they feel a little bit uncomfortable about that, which I had never seen asked in a question before. I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. And what I like is that instead of the poll just saying, half of veterans feel uncomfortable when you say thank you for your service because, I mean, that can leave you as a somebody who's reading this poll like, oh, no, it's like a coin flip. Anytime I see somebody, you know, somebody in uniform at an airport, like it's a coin flip's chance that if I say something, I'm going to offend them or, you know, make them not offend, but make them feel uncomfortable. Um, but then it goes on to give a suggestion. It says, instead, show support in a way that is personal and meaningful. I appreciate you and all the sacrifices you and your family have made. So, which I don't think the survey explicitly tests, would that make people feel comfortable or uncomfortable? But I, I think it's nice that it's sort of, you know, something that someone might do with great intentions, but they certainly wouldn't want to make someone feel uncomfortable. Is there a way you can thank someone for their service uh, that avoids that, you know, 50% chance that, that you're actually going to to make someone uncomfortable? Um, they also found that 39% of Americans say they're unsure how to start a conversation with a veteran. And so the poll, the folks conducting the poll suggest asking people, when did you serve? Where were you stationed? What was your job while serving? Uh, th- these are basic questions that can help you as the person having the conversation uh, open that discussion, but it's not super invasive. It's not like... You know, there are things you can ask that would, you know, potentially be like bring back up some trauma or 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 be too invasive or personal or emotional. Those are like basic things that can help you get social cues about how much more you should ask. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends, right? Because they – you're right. They, I mean, they aren't as, you know, they're conversation starters, I guess, as opposed to getting too invasive. At the same time, you know, if – if everybody looked at this infographic and said, okay, I'm going to do that now, will people feel, would you have veterans saying, okay, this is, I feel a little overwhelmed by people asking me three or four different questions when I meet them. So, um, but it, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, it, you know, it is a survey that without knowing the full details of how things were asked and so on, I still feel like it's trying to, you know, help people kind of interact and know how to how to interact and socialize with each other in a way that's more perhaps more helpful than your usual survey results which is like everybody disagrees breaking news everybody disagrees the end you know <laughs> so this poll was conducted by an organization the Cohen Veterans Network that focuses on post 911 veterans and Pew has some interesting polling where they surveyed US veterans and then they split the pre and post 911 veterans so if you were somebody who served in the military after 9-11 versus your service was all before 9-11, they find that the post-9-11 folks were more likely to be deployed at least once, 77%, compared to 58% who were pre-9-11. They're more likely to have served in a combat zone. Um, th- about half say they had an emotionally traumatic or distressing experience, and slightly more than a third say they sought help for emotional issues or suffered from post-traumatic stress. But there is still a delta there. There's a gap between the percentage who say they had some kind of traumatic experience and the percentage who say they've received help in dealing with that experience. So there's still uh, you know, more work to be done. Um, 
Interestingly, though, the good news, I guess, is that for veterans, the vast, vast majority say they would advise a young person close to them to join the military. That overall, 50% of adults would not encourage someone, a young person, to join the military compared to 45% saying yes. But among veterans, 79% say yes, they would encourage a young person to join the military. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of really interesting stuff here. I mean, we also had a uh, Smithsonian... Uh, surveys uh, along with Stars and Stripes. And they released some demographic subgroups that are pretty interesting. So they asked questions about, have you, you know, experienced any discrimination due to gender where very few men had said yes, but uh, uh, about two thirds of women um, said that they had. Um, so that was something that was pretty striking, whether or not people have witnessed another service member being sexually harassed or assaulted during their service. So just 17% of men said that they had, but 42% of women, I mean, not quite half, but a much larger percentage. So those differences are, are pretty striking. Uh, and you see them, you know, throughout some of these, uh, these other things. They also asked questions about how they felt about the, oh, this is the other one where there was a big gender difference was gender mixed basic training reduces physical training standards. And so a majority of men, 70% of men agreed with that. Only a third of women agreed with that, which, you know, is showing a gender difference in the other, other direction. They also asked this question about, oh yes, about the, Current occupation in Afghanistan has been going on too long. Here's something where there wasn't a very big difference. 84% said they agreed with that. Similar numbers said they agreed that the current occupation of Iraq has been going on too long. So 84% of both of agreed with both of those statements. Yeah, always very valuable to get data on what veterans are actually thinking, especially in an era now where other data, which I don't have directly in front of me, but it used to be much more the case that people either had someone in the military in their direct family, uh, in their you know immediate social network, and that is now one of the you know America is div- you know divided, and we all have different experiences. That like there is now a much greater divide between folks who do know folks who are in the military directly and those who say, look, there's no one in my close family or friend group. That, that that's just now it's less common. Um, so making sure that these voices are heard and are being studied is so valuable. So thank you to all of the folks who did this great work, um, trying to understand what they think. So we're going to wrap up talking about the holidays. Are you, Margie, are you anxious about the holidays yet? Um, no, I'm not anxious. I mean, you know, last year, I think was it last year? Maybe it was a different year now doing the show for so long. I don't remember which Thanksgiving it was, but there was one Thanksgiving where I said, Oh, Kristen, you know that thing where Thanksgiving, everybody kind of releases their how to talk about politics at the holidays. So, you know, since it's always really tense and you looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, it's not a thing. That's not a thing. It's a thing. It's a complete thing. And you're like, this is not a thing on our side. This is not our thing. Nope. <laughs> and so like, you know, at the holidays, I would get like three or four different emails from various groups. I'm whatever given money to or been part of in some way. Like, okay, here's your cheat sheet on how to talk about blank, you know, with your uncle. It's always an uncle um, for some reason. And, uh, and in fact, the fact that you had not 
perceive that as like a meme the way it is on the left. Like I often talk about that when people are like coming up with this year, we're going to do X. I'm like, did you know <laughs> that on the Republican side, like they have no idea what we're talking about? <laughs> like, what does that mean for this meme? Does that mean that we need more cheat sheets on how to talk about politics over the Thanksgiving holiday or fewer cheat sheets? So it's, I find that like for some reason, I find that partisan divide and even knowing that this is a thing to be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not anxious because I'm staying here in my house and I'm going away over winter holidays, but staying here over Thanksgiving and I am not anxious about it at all. So that's unusual for me. I'm totally excited about Thanksgiving. I'm going to have uh, visitors coming to town. And now that I have an actual functioning oven in my house, which has not been the case for the majority of 2019, that's a whole other saga. Uh, very excited to be able to like cook a turkey uh, in this house. That'll be nice. Um, I am, I would say, somewhat anxious, but not for like, oh, it's a difficult time of, not for any of like those sorts of reasons. It's things like, this is the time every year when I start thinking, okay, what am I going to do for Christmas cards? And inevitably, this, because it's not even Thanksgiving yet, I'm like, oh, Kristen, you're crazy. Why are you worried about Christmas cards now? <sighs> even when I, like, have, like, a little boost of energy and, like, I feel kind of vaguely motivated to, like, let's crack open that Excel sheet and update all the people who moved and stuff. And it's always this time of year when I get these, like, grand plans in my mind. Like, you start RSVPing yes to the Christmas parties the second week of December and, like... And then you get past Thanksgiving and it's like, oh, I've got to go pick out Christmas cards and then I have to do them. And oh, why did I RSVP to these things? I don't actually want to go to any of this. I want to just go home. It's cold out. Oh, God. So like this is the time of year when I know I have the false excitement, red cups at Starbucks. It's coming. I'm so happy. This is going to be so great. And I know three weeks from now I'm going to be like, Oh my gosh, I still haven't updated my Christmas card spreadsheet and oh no, and I've got to, I'm going to be leaving for, you know, to go hell. Oh. Like I I know what's coming and I know that I am not doing future Kristen the favors I need to be doing now because I'm yes. like, oh, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. It'd be silly to do these things, but I should do them and I should stop RSVPing yes to things. Yeah, it's a uh... I just, when I set my low expectations, I like going to parties, but I, and I, you know, I like, I like hosting at the same time. I, I don't like the kind of, you know, I didn't grow up with the sort of full, full court press that the holidays can be. So when I remind myself that that's not really my thing, then I just have a much better experience, you know, like <laughs> I, I'm more than happy to come to your party with a bottle of wine and be dressed up. That is not a problem. But to like, you know, make sure the whole house is like color coordinated and Christmas color. Like I'm not, I'm never going to do that. Like th that's not the thing that brings me joy. That only brings me stress. So I, I don't do that. There was, I mean, last year, we, you know, we came back from our holidays. And then we had all these lovely cards, which I love, like people writing these like things about their year that are beautiful. And, um, but you know, I don't do them, you know, <laughs> but I just, but I love reading other people's. And my husband's like, you know, wh why don't we do these? I'm like, I don't know. You tell me. Like, <laughs> you know, where are they? <laughs> where is your love note to, you know, our 300 closest friends? You know, you are more than welcome to do that. <laughs> so um, I just set the bar for myself very low. But that is not what this YouGov study is about. It is about 
How do people feel? Like, what are the reasons people are going to have a fight at the holidays? And number one is kind of this succession, the Roy's thing, which is longstanding family tensions, like the three the same reasons people always fight, that that's where a plurality say more than politics or 2020, um, more than someone's future plans, which is a little vague what that means, money, lower behavior of the guests, uh, drinking, drinking or alcohol, lower still at just a fifth, but still fifth is kind of high cooking, i.e. who is in charge of what that's 18%, which I thought was pretty funny. Who is in charge of what? There are people who do sometimes get mad about that kind of thing. But number one is just the things you always fight about, which I guess makes a lot of sense. Yep. The I feel like I've, I, I'm very fortunate and my family is fairly low drama. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out like, I mean, I, I think we've also sort of figured out that like I don't talk about politics because I am off the clock. I, for my job, have to talk about politics Asking me to talk about politics during the holidays would be like asking someone who is an engineer to engineer things during the holidays. Yeah. Or asking someone, I mean, if somebody passes out at your Christmas party and you're a nurse, maybe you do help when you're off the clock. Maybe if something breaks in your house, you do get the engineer person to help. But there is no reason, no reason why the political pundit should have to have her skills deployed during the holidays. Yeah. Under no circumstances. So Yeah, it depends. You know, sometimes <laughs> it depends on who I'm with. Sometimes I am more than happy and then other times I'm with you. I'm like, I'm off I'm off the clock, you know? I'm a, I am I'm just here. I'm just here for the turkey. I'm just yep. here for the well, I hate eggnog, but I'm here for whatever else you're serving. I'm gonna but, start um, telling people if you would really like to know my thoughts, I have a podcast and you are welcome to download five years worth of episodes. <laughs> You can listen to me talk about politics for weeks on end without ceasing if you would like. What, what Knock if, yourself what out. If, More episodes than friends. What if somebody like listened to a bunch of episodes in advance of seeing you at the holidays so they could then ask you about like episode, you know, 93 or what have you? Like I'd, I'd really like to grill you about your take on the Republican primary in September 2015, to which I would say, please do not. I have blocked that out. That would be funny. <laughs> so what did we learn this week? We learned that as we're headed to the primary poll, are, are the primary polls more or less volatile than the weather right now? They both tell us that we are headed toward winter. Uh, it's a good time to show respect to folks dedicated to public service, wherever they may be. They could be veterans, young adults brought in the country's children, or people testifying before Congress. And if the polls are making you anxious, don't worry. There's always Thanksgiving. You can find us on Twitter at, at the Pollsters, individually at, at Margie Omero and at Kay Soltis Anderson, or on Facebook or www.thepolsters.com. Visit us on Twitter, especially my uh, Is It Acceptable to Wear a Black Turtleneck and Red Lipstick in the Year 2019 critical poll of important national, national security relevance. Very critical. Come vote. It's fun. Make your voice heard. Make your voice heard. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. <laughs>